Section 19 The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Sinner Written by himself by James Hogg This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. These thoughts, I say, came upon me unmasked, and instead of being able to dispel them, they mustered upon the summit of my imagination in thicker and stronger array. And there was another that impressed me in a very particular manner, though I have reason to believe not so strongly as those above written. It was this. What if I should fail in my first effort? Will the consequence not be that I am tumbled from the top of the rock myself? And then all the feelings anticipated, with regard to both body and soul, must happen to me. This was a spine-breaking reflection, and yet, though the probability was rather on that side, my zeal in the cause of godliness was such that it carried me on, maugre all danger and dismay. I soon came close upon my brother, sitting on the dizzy pinnacle, with his eyes fixed steadfastly in the direction opposite to me. I descended the little green ravine behind him with my feet foremost, and every now and then raised my head and watched his motions. His posture continued the same, until at last I came so near him I could have heard him breathe if his face had been towards me. I laid my cap aside and made me ready to spring upon him and push him over. I could not for my life accomplish it. I do not think it was that I durst not. I have always felt my courage equal to anything in a good cause. But I had not the heart, or something that I ought to have had. In short, it was not done in time, as it easily might have been. These thoughts are hard enemies wherewith to combat. And I was so grieved that I could not effect my righteous purpose that I laid me down on my face and shed tears. Then again, I thought of what my great enlightened friend and patron would say to me, and again my resolution rose, indignant and indissoluble save by blood. I rose on my right knee and left foot, and had just begun to advance the ladder forward. The next step, my great purpose had been accomplished, and the culprit had suffered the punishment due to his crimes. But what moved him I knew not. In the critical moment he sprung to his feet, and dashing himself furiously against me, he overthrew me at the imminent peril of my life. 
I disencumbered myself by main force and fled. But he overhied me, knocked me down, and threatened, with dreadful oaths, to throw me from the cliff. After I was a little recovered from the stunning blow, I aroused myself to the combat. And though I do not recollect the circumstances of that deadly scuffle very minutely, I know that I vanquished him so far as to force him to ask my pardon and crave a reconciliation. I spurned at both and left him to the chastisements of his own wicked and corrupt heart. My friend met me again on the hill and derided me in a haughty and stern manner for my imbecility and want of decision. I told him how nearly I had affected my purpose, and excused myself as well as I was able. On this, seeing me bleeding, he advised me to swear the peace against my brother, and have him punished in the meantime, he being the first aggressor. I promised compliance and we parted, for I was somewhat ashamed of my failure, and was glad to be quit for the present of one of whom I stood so much in awe. When my reverend father beheld me bleeding a second time by the hand of a brother, he was moved to the highest point of displeasure, and relying on his high interest in the justice of his cause, he brought the matter at once before the courts. My brother and I were first examined face to face. His declaration was a mere romance. Mine was not the truth, but as it was by the advice of my reverend father and that of my illustrious friend, both of whom I knew to be sincere Christians and true believers, that I gave it, I conceived myself completely justified on that score. I said I had gone up into the mountain early on the morning to pray, and had withdrawn myself for entire privacy into a little sequestered dell, had laid aside my cap, and was in the act of kneeling when I was rudely attacked by my brother, knocked over and nearly slain. They asked my brother if this was true. He acknowledged that it was, that I was bareheaded and in the act of kneeling when he ran foul of me without any intent of doing so. But the judge took him to task on the improbability of this, and put the profligate sore out of countenance. The rest of his tale told still worse, insomuch that he was laughed at by all present. For the judge remarked to him that, granting it was true that he had first run against me on an open mountain and overthrown me by accident, how was it that, after I had extricated myself and fled, that he had pursued, overtaken, and knocked me down a second time? Would he pretend that all that was likewise by chance? The culprit had nothing to say for himself on this head, and I shall never forget my exultation 
and that of my reverend father when the sentence of the judge was delivered. It was that my wicked brother should be thrown into prison and tried on a criminal charge of assault and battery, with the intent of committing murder. This was a just and righteous judge, and saw things in their proper bearings, that is, he could discern between a righteous and a wicked man. And then there could be no doubt as to which of the two were acting right and which wrong. Had I not been sensible that a justified person could do nothing wrong, I should not have been at my ease concerning the statement I had been induced to give on this occasion. I could easily perceive that, by rooting out the weeds from the garden of the church, I heightened the growth of righteousness. But, as to the tardy way of giving false evidence on matters of such doubtful issue, I confess I saw no great propriety in it from the beginning. But I now only moved by the will and mandate of my illustrious friend. I had no peace or comfort when out of his sight, nor have I ever been able to boast of much in his presence. So true is it that a Christian's life is one of suffering. My time was now much occupied, along with my reverend preceptor, in making ready for the approaching trial as the prosecutors. Our counsel assured us of a complete victory, and that banishment would be the mildest award of the law on the offender. Mark how different was the result! From the shifts and ambiguities of a wicked bench, who had a fellow feeling of inequity with the defenders. My suit was lost, the graceless libertine was absolved, and I was incarcerated, and bound over to keep the peace with heavy penalties before I was set at liberty. I was exceedingly disgusted at this issue, and blamed the counsel of my friend to his face. He expressed great grief, and expatiated on the wickedness of our justitories, adding, I see I cannot depend on you for quick and summary measures, but for your sake I shall be revenged on that wicked judge, and that you shall see in a few days. The Lord Justice Clerk died that same week, but he died in his own house and his own bed, and by what means my friend effected it I do not know. He would not tell me a single word of the matter. But the judge's sudden death made a great noise, and I made so many curious inquiries regarding the particulars of it that some suspicions were like to attach to our family of some unfair means used. For my part, I know nothing, and rather think he died by the visitation of heaven and that my friend had foreseen it by symptoms 
and soothed me by promises of complete revenge. It was some days before he mentioned my brother's meditated death to me again. And certainly, he then found me exasperated against him personally to the highest degree. But I told him that I could not now think any more of it owing to the late judgment of the court, by which, if my brother were missing or found dead, I would not only forfeit my life, but my friends would be ruined by the penalties. I suppose you know and believe in the perfect safety of your soul, said he, and that that is a matter settled from the beginning of time, and now sealed and ratified both in heaven and earth. I believe in it thoroughly and perfectly, said I, and whenever I entertain doubts of it, I am sensible of sin and weakness. Very well, so then am I, said he. I think I can now divine, with all manner of certainty, what will be the high and merited guerdon of your immortal part. Hear me then further. I give you my solemn assurance and bond of blood that no human hand shall ever henceforth be able to injure your life or shed one drop of your precious blood. But it is on the condition that you walk always by my directions. I will do so with cheerfulness, said I, for without your enlightened counsel, I feel that I can do nothing. But as to your power of protecting my life, you must excuse me for doubting of it. Nay, were we in your proper dominions, you could not ensure that. In whatever dominion or land I am, my power accompanies me, said he, and it is only against human might and human weapon that I ensure your life. On that will I keep an eye, and on that you may depend. I have never broken word or promise with you. Do you credit me? Yes, I do, said I, for I see you are in earnest. I believe though I do not comprehend you. Then why do you not at once challenge your brother to the field of honor? Seeing you now act without danger, cannot you also act without fear? It is not fear, returned I. Believe me, I hardly know what fear is. It is a doubt that, on all these emergencies, constantly haunts my mind that, in performing such and such actions, I may fall from my upright state. This makes fratricide a fearful task. This is imbecility itself, said he. We have settled and agreed on that point an hundred times. I would therefore advise that you challenge your brother to single combat. I shall ensure your safety, and he cannot refuse giving you satisfaction. Uh, but then the penalties, said I. We will try to evade these, said he, 
and supposing you should be caught, if once you are Laird of Dal Castle and Belgrenin, what are the penalties to you? Might we not rather pop him off in private and quietness? As we did the diastical divine, said I. The deed would be alike meritorious either way, said he. But may we not wait for years before we find an opportunity. My advice is to challenge him, as privately as you will, and there, cut him off. So be it then, said I. When the moon is at the full, I will send for him forth to speak with one. And there will I smite him and slay him, and he shall trouble the righteous no more. Then this is the very night, said he. The moon is nigh to the full, and this night your brother and his sinful mates hold carousel. For there is an intended journey tomorrow. The exalting profligate leaves town, where we must remain till the time of my departure hence. And then is he safe, and must live to dishonor God, and not only destroy his own soul, but those of many others. Alack, and woe is me! The sins that he and his friends will commit this very night will cry to heaven against us for our shameful delay. When shall our great work of cleansing the sanctuary be finished, if we proceed at this puny rate? I see the deed must be done then, said I. And since it is so, it shall be done. I will arm myself forthwith, and from the midst of his wine and debauchery, you shall call him forth to me, and there will I smite him with the edge of the sword, that our great work be not retarded. If thy execution were equal to thy intent, how great a man you soon might be, said he. We shall make the attempt once more, and if it fail again, why, I must use other means to bring about my high purposes relating to mankind. Home and make ready. I will go and procure what information I can regarding their motions, and will meet you in disguise twenty minutes hence, at the first turn of Huey's Lane beyond the lock. I have nothing to make ready, said I for I do not choose to go home. Bring me a sword, and we may consecrate it with prayer and vows. And if I use it not to the bringing down of the wicked and profane, then may the Lord do so to me, and more also. We parted, and there was I left again to the municipality of my own thoughts for the space of twenty minutes. A thing my friend never failed in subjecting me to and these were worse to contend with than hosts of sinful men. I prayed inwardly that these deeds of mine might never be brought to the knowledge of men who were incapable of appreciating the high motives that led to them. And then I sung part of the tenth psalm, likewise in spirit. But for all these efforts, my sinful doubts returned so that when my illustrious friend joined me, 
and proffered me the choice of two gilded rapiers. I declined accepting any of them, and began, in a very bold and energetic manner, to express my doubts regarding the justification of all the deeds of perfect men. He chided me severely, and branded me with cowardice, a thing that my nature never was subject to. And then he branded me with falsehood and breach of the most solemn engagements, both to God and man. I was compelled to take the rapier much against my inclination. But for all the arguments, threats, and promises that he could use, I would not consent to send a challenge to my brother by his mouth. There was one argument only that he made use of, which had some weight with me, but yet it would not preponderate. He told me my brother was gone to a notorious and scandalous habitation of women, and that, if I'd left him to himself for ever so short a space longer, it might embitter his state through ages to come. This was a trying concern to me, but I resisted it and reverted to my doubts. On this, he said that he had meant to do me honor, but since I put it out of his power, he would do the deed and take the responsibility on himself. I have, with sore travail, procured a guardship of your life, added he. For my own I have not, but, be that as it will, I shall not be baffled in my attempts to benefit my friends without a trial. You will at all events accompany me and see that I get justice. Certus I will do thus much, said I, and woe be to him if his arm prevail against my friend and patron. His lip curled with a smile of contempt, which I could hardly brook, and I began to be afraid that the eminence to which I had been destined by him was already fading from my view. And I thought what I should then do to ingratiate myself again with him, for without his continence I had no life. I will be a man in act, thought I, but in sentiment I will not yield, and for this he must surely admire me the more. End of section 19